Dude, dude, drop the gun, man. Shots fired, shots fired. A Daytona police officer had to fire on an armed suicidal man in a backyard on Bellevue Avenue. That and more coming up on Sun Crime State. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a new podcast that takes an in-depth look at some of the biggest headline-grabbing crime stories from yesterday and today across Florida. In this episode, we'll take a look at an officer-related fatal shooting, one that generated criticism from the NAACP. But that criticism was not directed toward police, but the local mental health system in Daytona Beach. In our second segment, called Only in Florida, I'll discuss a couple of zany criminal cases involving naked women who have a penchant for criminal mischief. And finally, in our look-back segment, I'll discuss a West Volusia murder case involving a funeral director who tried covering up his crime by hiding the body in a closed, buried casket. My special guest for that segment will be retired Volusia County Sheriff's media spokesman, Gary Davidson. We will talk about the officer-related fatal shooting after the break. A suicidal Daytona Beach man induced an encroaching police officer to fire at him from more than 40 yards away the afternoon of August 22nd. The man's sister pleaded for him to drop his gun, but he wouldn't. The officer ordered the man three times to drop his gun, but he wouldn't. Seconds later, a sequence of pops filled the air along Bellevue Avenue. I don't even see the gun here in his hand. got to be on his back. I got him. Please drop the gun! Drop the gun! Uh, he's talking to me saying get back. He does have the gun on her. Hey, come here, ma'am, come here. Any other CID members reading, go go over there and help him. We're gone. Dude. Dude, drop the gun, man. Shots fired, shots fired. Shots fired. Man, get back! Get back! Okay, he's down. He's far away from me, though. Backyard, backyard. Eventually, police were pulling the body of 23-year-old Shakiri Willis out of some tall weeds. He was dead from a gunshot wound to the neck. Officer Chris Marr was distraught. He paced around the yard for several minutes, screaming profanities. He was consoled by fellow officers who insisted he had no choice. The man he had shot was armed with a 40 caliber handgun, and the suspect's sister was standing only feet from him. On Wednesday, during a press conference, Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri told the media that the fatal bullet did not come from Mars' gun, and had come from Willis's own weapon. It appears at this point in time, still under investigation by FDLE, that our officers' rounds did not uh, strike Mr. Willis. Uh, there's no other uh, uh, 
Gunshot wounds on his body except the one single gunshot contact wound to the left side of his neck. I've been in contact with the family and uh, gave them that information. And they are, they are with us and in agreement with us on, on the findings. And the investigation continues as far as uh, FDLE doing their end of their investigation. So. Capri was joined at the lectern by a number of local civil rights leaders, including the head of the local chapter of the NAACP, Cynthia Slater. None of them complained of law enforcement's response to the Willis home. Instead, they were critical of Halifax Health Medical Center, the hospital that discharged Willis earlier that morning in spite of the suicidal statements he had been making during the last days of his life. John Guthrie, a spokesman with Halifax Health, said he could not speak about Willis's treatment because hospital policy, as well as federal law, prohibits him to disclose any patient information. Willis's family told police that he had taken a psychedelic drug about a week or two before the shooting. He was never the same afterward. It all culminated Tuesday afternoon at Willis's mother's house. A neighbor told the news journal that he saw Willis get out of an SUV that had just pulled in front of the Bellevue home. He ran around the east end of the house to the backyard, and his sister, who was in hysterics, was chasing after him. Another neighbor called 911. Yeah, I have a guy next door with a gun in his hand, and he's walking around his yard talking about killing himself. What's the address? My address is 522 Bellevue Avenue, and he's right next door. Okay, Jackie. Young black man, there's a girl in the yard with him. She's talking to him, trying to calm him down, but he's walking around with a gun in his hand. Next door, which direction? Like toward MLK or away from MLK? Toward MLK, next door, right, right next to me. Is he pointing he's at in the backyard. Has he been pointing at anything individual or just waving it around? No, he's got it to his side, pointed down, but it, it's in his hand, and he's talking about nobody's helping him, and he's just going to shoot himself, and the girl's uh, crying and screaming and saying she's going to call the cops if he doesn't give her the gun, and I'm calling you guys so you get somebody out here to handle this before somebody dies. Willis did die using his own gun only minutes later. Marr was placed on paid leave indefinitely which is consistent with the police department's policy. Capri had nothing but praise for Mars' response. We train daily. It's almost like a professional athlete. That's what we are. We're low-paid professional athletes. We train every day, whether it be in our specialty, whether it be de-escalation, defensive tactics. The goal at the end of the day is not to take anybody's life. The goal of the day is to go home alive and then protect our community, and that's what I think we did yesterday. Uh, I, I thought, I, I'm very proud of the way he handled it. When you see the video, he showed great restraint, uh, tactics, approach. I mean, I mean, he did everything right for a guy that's been on the department like a little over two years, three years, somewhere around there. I thought he did a phenomenal job. And now he is grieving over this, too. He, he, we're here, to, we got to help him, too, because he's going through something, too, right now. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is still investigating the August 22 shooting. Such cases take months to complete. Coming up, the story of an unruly and unclothed female suspect. On August 22nd, Richard Gulick, a manager at a waterfront inn in Sebastian, 
called 911 to report a naked homeless woman was wreaking havoc on a top floor balcony. The incident stemmed from an argument the woman was having with a tenant at the Sebastian Inn and Suites on US 1. The woman, 25-year-old Tiffany Frick, was not being a quiet guest, not according to Gulick, who called 911. I have a drunken guest of a tenant, naked, screaming, throwing stuff out the room. And you're at Sebastian Inn and Suites? Yes. You're hearing a lot from us lately. Gulick said the tenant walked away from the woman, but the woman was still on site, causing a disturbance. At one point, she had been seen throwing a computer off the balcony. Gulick told the operator more than once that the woman appeared very drunk. Are they involved in a disturbance? I guess they are fighting. And it's for everybody to see now. She's very drunk. I will need her to be trespassed. She is simply a friend of a guest. When deputies arrived at the scene, they could hear Frick yelling from inside the apartment. When they asked why they were household items on the balcony and on the sidewalk below, she said she was crazy. And that's why she was throwing items out of the apartment. At one point, Frick came outside and continued to yell profanities at both her male companion and at Gulick. Deputies warned her to stop screaming, but she refused. As a result, Frick was arrested. According to an arrest report, she was put into restraints and placed in the back of a patrol car. Frick kept banging her head against the cage during the ride to jail. She also spit all over the back seat and floorboard. She was charged with disorderly conduct, and her bail was set at $500. That incident was somewhat similar to another incident that took place in Daytona Beach on May 18th. They were similar in that they both involved naked, belligerent women. During the morning of May 18th, after Luz Azuno had left to take her kids to school, her live-in companion called her to ask her whether she knew about the naked woman that was in the bedroom applying lotion to her body. Azuno did not know what he was talking about. She returned home and encountered the naked stranger, who broke the television on her way toward the door. The naked woman left the house but kept roaming the neighborhood. A stunned Azuno called 911. The operator sounded surprised, too, by the call. All right, listen, it's kind of hard to understand you, so hold on one second, okay? We have a naked woman, white female, in her 50s, walking up to everybody's house. Yes, and now she's laying in my front yard, tanning, putting tan lotion. She's completely naked. Okay, a uh, female walking, and she's laying in your front yard? Yes, right in my, literally right in my driveway. Okay, laying in RP's driveway, right? Yes. And what was she doing with candles? Well, she's putting suntan lotion. She's tanning in the, the oh, sun. she's tanning. Okay. Tanning. When police showed up, they found 45-year-old Donna Jones sitting naked on the sidewalk in the 400 block of Whitney Street. She was ordered to put on some clothes, 
but she sat still on top of the swimsuit she had placed on top of the concrete sidewalk. An officer eventually placed a jacket over her. As bystanders stood around gawking, police placed the naked woman, whose listed residence was Morristown, Tennessee, into the back of a patrol car. Jones was booked at the Volusia County Branch Jail on charges of unarmed burglary and criminal mischief. She pleaded no contest in June. She was sentenced to 60 days behind bars and received two years probation. As part of her sentencing agreement with the state, Jones's conviction would be removed from her record as long as she doesn't violate her probation. After the break, we'll take a look back at a 1999 homicide case involving a resourceful funeral home director in DeBerry. Mark Vellella handled bodies for a living. He was a funeral director. One night in August 1999, during a homicidal urge sparked by his jealous rage, he applied his on-the-job skills to cover up his wife's murder. After fatally stabbing Exley Villela, Mark Villela stuffed his wife's lifeless body into a closed casket, one that also was occupied by a deceased 87-year-old woman, and buried it. The story of the murderous embalmer from DeBerry made national headlines. For 22 years, Gary Davidson was the media spokesman for the Volusia County Sheriff's Office. When he retired in June, he cited the Valella murder case as one of the very few that stuck with him the most. Yeah, you know, there, there are just some cases that, that stick out in your mind because they're so unusual, so odd, so bizarre, and this certainly was one of those cases. Um, I, I don't know what it is about Florida, but we seem to have more than our share of high-profile, infamous, bizarre crimes. And the murder of Exley Valella certainly was one of the more bizarre ones. Um, not because of the murder itself, it involved a jealous and controlling husband who decided to kill his wife, uh, but rather for the way that the killer disposed of the body to try to conceal the crime. That was something that we had never heard of before and something that certainly grabbed a lot of national attention and headlines. The morning of August 6, 1999, Valella's wife, Exley, did not show up for work. One of her co-workers, who knew her intimately, assumed she was killed by her husband. Pretty soon, detectives had the same thought. Mark Villela was questioned about 20 times by the Volusia County Sheriff's Office, and during 19 of those interviews, he told police the same story. He last saw his wife the night of August 5th in the kitchen. He took some over-the-counter sleeping tablets, then went to bed. When he woke up the next morning, his wife was gone. Detectives never believed that story. They kept finding reasons not to. For instance, when a relative spoke to law enforcement about her last phone conversation with Exley, she could hear her husband arguing in the background. When Valella was interviewed by detectives, he showed no signs of panic or even the slightest indication 
of concern. What our investigators learned in this case was that according to witnesses, Mark was controlling, he was suspicious of Exley to the point that he called her virtually every morning to make sure she was at work. Um, but in the days after her disappearance, he never called her job to check on her like he normally did. Uh, but the biggest red flag of all uh, was the fact that Exley supposedly fled the house with no warning and no trace, according to Mark. Uh, she left without her car, she left without her keys, she left without her other worldly possessions, and, and, and more important, she left without her 18-month-old son. Uh, virtually every, everyone who knew Exley said this made no sense, said it was totally out of character for her, and that she never would have left home without her child. So certainly all those red flags raised very serious concerns and suspicions about Mark's version of events. Villela did talk to detectives a lot during the investigation. He even spoke to the media at least once. When contacted by phone, Villela told a news journal reporter, quote, It's not been easy. I've just kind of been hanging by the phone, waiting to hear something. He also told the reporter that his wife, a West Virginia native, may have gone out of town to visit relatives, or maybe she just needed some time alone to sort things out. Detective suspicions were ratcheted up even more because of what Villela did not talk about. During their initial interviews, uh, Mark did concede that he and his wife were having marital problems, uh, but he claimed that they were working things out. Um, but I think one of the most telling things was the fact that in at least three different interviews with deputies, Mark never disclosed the full truth that his wife was having an affair with a co-worker and he knew about it. That was something that the deputies discovered for themselves through their investigation. Villela was a funeral director at Deltona Memorial Funeral Home and Cemetery in Orange City. He had 18 years in the business. The first time his and his wife's names appeared in the news journal was one year before Exley's disappearance. It was a brief in the business section announcing Deltona Memorial's newest hire. Villela, according to the short article, was a U.S. Air Force veteran and had done a lot of work with the Arlington National Cemetery while working for a funeral home in Washington, D.C. That's where he met his wife, who also was a funeral director. The couple moved from the nation's capital to DeBerry, where they both took new jobs at separate funeral homes. Exley was employed with a funeral business in Orlando. On August 26th, investigators called in Villela and told him their suspicions. His wife's body was in the casket designated for 89-year-old Marjorie Hutchinson, who was buried in a closed casket just days after Exley went missing. Villela confessed. Here he is admitting his crime to lead investigator Steve Willis. Born in the kitchen, got a knife, stabbed chest. The autopsy showed that Villela stabbed his wife several times in the chest with a kitchen knife as she lay asleep in the bed they shared. Two of those stab wounds lacerated her heart. Also during his confession, Villela said his wife not only confirmed his suspicions about her affair and not only asked for a divorce, but she also told him their son would be going with her. Detectives believed that was what caused him to snap. What he did afterward was far more calculating. 
I discussed the gruesome details with Davidson. I'm sure to Mark's way of thinking, this was a, a, a very novel and innovative way to cover his tracks and to conceal the crime, but once you look at the fact that the husband's story wasn't adding up, um, the fact that he wasn't reacting the way someone should if their wife was missing and unaccounted for, um, and then you look at um, his job, what he did for a living, and you very quickly start developing not only motive, but uh, potential uh, method of disposing of the body. So, uh, you know, those details certainly didn't escape the notice of our investigators. All homicides are are gruesome, Um, but this one appears worse than than most. Uh, Villela stabbed his wife in the chest while she lay in her bed, uh, wrapped her in a fitted sheet and a mattress pad, stuffed her into a body bag with a pillow and some linens, stored it in a cooler, the body in a cooler, and then and then placed it into a casket with another body. Uh, he went through the trouble of stripping part of the casket's lining so that it could that it could fit both bodies. Um, he didn't embalm his wife. So how would you describe the level of gruesomeness of this murder? Well, all murders obviously are heinous. All murders are gruesome. And uh, this particular murder certainly was heinous, certainly was gruesome. Um, But I I think what really sticks out in my mind are a couple things. Number one, the level of planning that you just described. Um, And then to have done all those things and yet sit there uh, very calm and cool and collected uh, during multiple interviews with investigators and to claim that he had no knowledge of his wife's whereabouts, had no idea where she was or where she went or what happened to her um, is just it's just unbelievable. On August 27th, 22 days after Exley was last seen alive, authorities dug up Hutchinson's casket in an Orange City cemetery and found two bodies instead of one. Investigators found Exley's corpse lying under Hutchinson's. Valella was charged with first-degree murder. He said his love of Exley and his fear of losing her drove him to commit murder. Love that woman to death. I can take leave of losing her or another child. I just cracked. Couldn't take any more enough sleep. Losing her. Losing my son. I know it's dead. Eventually, Valella's defiance was replaced with remorse. During his final interview with Detective Willis, during which he was accompanied by his brother, Valella seemed to come to realize the gravity of all he had done. Why are you talking to me today? It's like I let myself like this. Put my family through all this. I didn't mean to make all this mess. I really did. 
I'm just scared of what's going to happen. I didn't play this. That's why I'm sitting here talking to you right here. Oh, it was a fib. Villela was tried two years later. Jurors took three hours to convict him of first-degree murder. The state did not pursue the death penalty, so Villela was sentenced to life in prison. But the conviction didn't stick. One final twist in, in, in this rather bizarre case, and that is that the, uh, a couple years later, uh, Mark's defense attorneys were successful in getting that conviction thrown out. Um, and, and as I recall, the primary reason for the conviction being overturned was the fact that uh, they had suppressed information related to Exley's affair. The, the jury never heard that. And the appeals judge, as I recall, ruled that that was important information that the jury should have heard because that would have helped support the defense's position that it was a crime of passion um, and that he simply snapped um, and wasn't thinking straight, wasn't thinking clearly, and therefore made it something less than first-degree murder. Not wanting to face another trial and risk another jury convicting him of first-degree murder, Villela pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Davidson recalls the case not only for the unique means by which the killer tried to hide his crime, but also because of the extreme level of grief Exley's family and loved ones felt. You know, it's just unimaginable how a family goes through this kind of horror. Obviously, they've been violated in the worst possible way, and they've lost a loved one through through violence, and they'll never get see her again she'll never celebrate another birthday another christmas but she didn't get to see her her son uh, grow up and that was absolutely devastating obviously for everybody involved i i believe i i read somewhere where her father had to catch a ride part of the way to florida to be able to attend the trial because his flight schedule was interrupted by the terrorist events of of 9-11. And so uh, it's just unimaginable horror and grief that, that the family experienced. Two families were deeply affected by Valella's crimes. The Hutchinson family in South Carolina were appalled when detectives called them to notify them of what Valella had done. Absolutely, that had to be unbelievably disturbing that family to, to have you know, sacred burial rights be violated in that way. Just, just awful for everybody involved. Valella, meanwhile, has served 18 of his 40-year sentence. He is scheduled to be released in July 2034, which would make him 74 years old when he becomes a free man again. 
Thank you for tuning in. This is Tony Holt, and you've been listening to Sun Crime State. Join me next week when I'll be talking about a double slaying in Flagler Beach that led to a unique custody battle. Among my guests will be former prosecutor Jackie Royce and news journal legal reporter Frank Fernandez. See you then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.